Hello, and welcome to episode 16 of Splash of Cinema. I'm Pete. And I'm John. Good to have you guys back. Uh, today we're going to get into some really good films. Um, this this episode we're going to be covering some more nominees before tomorrow's Academy Awards ceremony, um, including some short films and some nominees in, in all of the categories, most of the categories at least. And... Um, and to end, we're going to make some predictions just as we did with the Golden Globes, which weren't very successful. But I have a feeling that these predictions are going to be more successful. Um, the Oscars is the culminating event of the uh, American Film Awards season, and it's generally regarded as the most prestigious award ceremony. Um, there's a lot of really good contenders this year, and we're going to be covering some of the top dogs today, as well as some of the, you know, minor dogs um, in the short films category, for example. So Pete, any thoughts on the Oscars before we get into it? Yeah. Uh, a lot of the nominees we've already covered if you've been following the podcast. So we're not going to cover those, uh, just because that'd be regurgitation and unnecessary, but we will be covering a lot more films today than we normally do. And we have a very diverse catalog for you today from shorts to documentaries to features. And I'm super excited for this episode. Uh, I don't know about you. No, Pete, I'm not excited at all. I'm not excited. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Yeah, of course I am. Um, who doesn't like to talk about movies, especially award shows that those are like the uh, time when time when you get to celebrate movies. Um, so let's just get into it. You ready, Pete? Yeah, let's do it. All right. So um, the first film we're going to be covering is actually a short film, which fits into this this year's uh, best animated short category. And this one is entitled Opera, which is probably Pete and I's personal favorite in the category. And the plot is described as our society and history, which is filled with beauty and absurdity. Um, Oscars are pretty, or opera is a pretty confusing movie. Um, it's only eight minutes and it's actually directed by Eric O, who's a former Pixar animator. I don't really know how to describe what happens in opera, but visually it's pretty cool. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if you've ever played uh, that that iOS game. I forget what it's called, but it's that little white guy. And he's you like have a whole like region that you rule over. It's that style of animation. I will get that to you by the end of the episode. But uh, it's 2D animation and it's it has some subtext to it, which I like, uh, but it doesn't flat out go and say it. Uh, and, you know, this is different for someone who you know, grew up doing Pixar and that's how he made his career. And it's cool to see animators doing that uh, and especially getting recognition at the Academy Award level. It's really cool to see. Yeah, he was, Eric O was, you know, one of those grinders for Pixar that would, he probably, you know, did some animation on Academy Award winning films before. And of course, none of those guys really get the recognition of the actual Oscar. So I guess he went out and tried to get his own and this year he's nominated, so we'll see how successful he is. Opera was, yeah, really just a deep film. I don't understand how the title at all relates to anything in it. I think he just picked a random word. But nonetheless, um, in eight minutes, you can kind of read into the film as much as you want. If you look at it on the surface, it's just a visually striking film that's got some really cool it's kind of set as a, like a pyramid of human history. So it's got some of the big important moments in, in human history. Um, 
But if you want to read into it deeply, it's got a lot of dialogue on human relations and like things like slavery, for example, and uh, war. And just in the third person observer aspect, it kind of makes it all seem trivial and silly. Um, but it also shows kind of how the human history has evolved. And I think that's really cool. Um, yeah, I would, it's one of those films that I had to read about for longer than the film actually was. I was reading, <laughs> I read about it for more length than the film actually was. Um, and I still didn't really understand what was going on by the end. And I guess that means it's good. <laughs> I mean, yeah, if you look at it that way, uh, get, I mean, if they get you thinking in an eight minute time frame, that that's good. Uh, so that's a plus. And, you know, I, I don't know much about this category going into the award show, but I could definitely see this coming out on top uh, just because the style of animation oftentimes with these animated shorts, if the style's a little different, then they're going to go to that. I mean, obviously Pixar has Bur- Burrow, which is nominated part of their spark short series, but uh, maybe this is a sleeper who knows uh, who really knows for this category. We'll talk about it later, but uh, so that was 2020's opera and we're going to move on to another animated short. Uh, it's a Netflix original, and it's called If Anything Happens, I Love You. And the plot reads, in the, aftermath, in the aftermath of tragedy, two grieving parents journey through an emotional void as they mourn the loss of a child. Uh, it's directed by Michael Govier and Will McCormick. And uh, this film, the animation style is really cool. Uh, I like how sort of these shadow figures are used throughout uh, and yeah, I mean, it, it's super sad though. Uh, this doc, uh, this animated short, uh, it follows a school shooting, uh, that really isn't conveyed until halfway through. And, you know, I'm going to spoil it cause it's a short film. Uh, but yeah, it's super sad. And I was expecting, you know, Netflix produced, it's going to be light and cheery. And there, like the picture was a family and, you know, it kind of, kind of took me back a bit but nonetheless i enjoyed it and the animation style was really cool yeah this is actually my prediction for the winner of the best animated short category um it's a lot easier than opera to read it's it's pretty clear cut i mean it's the parents mourning the loss of their child uh from a school shooting and it was actually made like inspired by the parkland shooting and parents of the parkland shooting um so it's a really powerful film with with recent, like in regards to a recent tragedy. So um, I'm sure a lot of viewers connect with it. Um, it's a pretty important issue in our culture right now, especially in, in the United States. Um, and so on top of being just a great animated piece in only 12 minutes, it also conveys a lot of really deep themes. And, you know, I could definitely see like crying to this film, for example, Um yeah, it's interesting that Netflix produced it, but I'm sure they saw a really good film and put their money behind it. So that's exactly what happened. Um, and I, I just think it's going to resonate with the Academy voters really well, just as it resonated with me. I mean, it was pretty clear to see um, from the film and be able to read the film that it was about a school shooting and about how the parents have to go through their daily lives without their child and and how they suffer from that. And like they go into the kid's room and they're not there. Um, and it brings back memories and, you know, that creates conflict between the parents and that, that creates a lot of sadness. I think the shadows as part of the animation style also reinforce those themes. 
um, like the shadow of the missing child. But yeah, just a really deep, really powerful film. It's not a light watch at all. But um, the fact that it's 12 minutes, it's easier to bear. And um, I'd, I'd highly recommend it. Like we said, it's it's available on Netflix and it will be. So if you have 12 minutes before the Oscars, you're looking at a favorite for the best animated short category. Um, I don't have much more to say on it, but but it was a just a great film. So um, we have covered now Opera and If Anything Happens, I Love You, which are two contenders in the animated short category. And now we're going to con- cover a contender in the live action short category. This one is entitled The Letter Room. And the plot reads, when a corrections officer is transferred to the letter room, he soon finds himself enmeshed in a prisoner's deep private life. Uh, written and directed by Elvira Lind and stars Oscar Isaac and Aliyah Shawcott, which is like a crazy good cast for a short film. Both turn in uh, excellent performances. It's pretty much just following Oscar Isaac for 30 minutes as he plays this Hispanic prison guard that is very, you know, it's pretty clear from the beginning that he's not interested interested in like punishing the prisoners or being penal in any sense but he wants to kind of get to know them and he gets his chance working in the letter room. Um, although I found it a little creepy. He, he gets a little too involved in their personal lives. So in 30 minutes, it's humorous in a sense. It's also touching. It's, it's kind of sad. Um, I think it speaks to some problems in our justice system. And um, yeah, for another short film, it's, it's a pretty, pretty good, good uh, message and a pretty good, movie yeah uh it's not super short though i want to say that uh it's about 30 minutes so it's like sitcom length uh but yeah like like you were saying uh there's not much to the story uh some stuff does happen but it's nothing monumental or anything it's it's more of a slice of life look into the life of this corrections officer who like you said just doesn't want to be a corrections officer in a sense you know and i love uh there's a part in the movie where he gets promoted so to say it's not really a promotion uh but he gets put in the letter room and he he thinks it's this huge this huge responsibility and i i think that's really really funny and oscar isaac plays it really well and you know it like eric oh it's cool to see someone with the esteem and acclaim as oscar isaac uh doing this independent uh short film stuff but you know it's garnering attention at the academy awards uh so that's super exciting and yeah uh i enjoyed letter room uh definitely yeah, I think in, in a year like 2020, in which so many projects and, and big feature films were put on hold, and there was basically a lack of filming just in general, um, yeah, I, it allowed a lot of like people to work on these independent projects and get them done, um, especially since they saw that this might not be as competitive of an award season. And, you know, people like Oscar Isaac clearly took advantage of that in this situation, and it, it worked out well. I mean, he's adding to his repertoire a nomination for best live action short film, which not many actors can claim. So I think that's really cool. Um, Letter Room, unfortunately, is not available to stream, but I'm sure it will be soon. And um, it's it's a pretty good watch for 30 minutes. Yeah, like Pete said, a slice of life. Doesn't get super deep, but um, it, it it's emotional in a sense. And and it's a pretty good look at what uh, someone reading other people's letters might be going through. Um, so that was the letter room. Now um, we're going to move on to the feature films of, of our night. 
And it's going to start with our hidden gem of the week, which is a documentary entitled Time. And it is the true story of Fox Rich, who fights for the release of her husband, Rob. Uh, And Rob was serving a 60-year prison sentence for armed robbery, directed by Garrett Bradley and stars Roberts II, Fox Rich, and Lawrence M. Rich. And it's available on Amazon Prime Video. This is our hidden gem of the week for a couple reasons. Um, First of all, it's kind of a milestone in documentary filmmaking, which I believe are the exact words Pete used in his review. Um, Just because of the way that it's styled, it's, it's kind of a compilation of home footage, emotional, powerful shots, and interviews from the characters over a period of about 20 years. And to compound, compound all this, it's a true story. So uh, Fox Rich is, you know, a person in real life, and she's kind of a modern day matriarch of sorts. She has to raise her six kids by herself, while her husband is justly serving time in prison. But of course, it becomes pretty clear early on that he does not deserve the sentence that he got. Um, basically, Fox Rich and her husband committed, uh, tried to rob a bank because um, they fell on hard times and they could not raise enough money to make their business successful. And they both immediately admitted to the mistake and, you know, agreed to cooperate in the investigation and uh, sentencing. Fox Rich got like seven months in prison or something. And her husband, unfortunately, was sentenced to a 60 year prison sentence. So she spends, you know, all this time raising her children while fighting for his release. So it's kind of this social justice film that touches a lot on the incarceration system and how it damages American families and, and lives. It's, it's kind of like modern day slavery in a sense, but it also is about a woman trying to just do her best to raise her kids and instill good values in them. And I found all those things really compelling in this film. And you know, of course the documentary itself, the style that it was shot in just amplifies all that. Yeah, this is, this is one of the best documentaries I've seen in quite a long time. Uh, like you said, the emotional weight that Garrett Bradley uh, does with time is is crazy. And uh, if you remember back to our 2020 ranked, this was one of Sam Rosevere's top five. Uh, and that's saying a lot, uh, because if you know Sam from the podcast, he has, he has great taste in film. And uh, I'm glad he put us both on this one. And uh, yeah, just like you were saying, it, it is a milestone. Uh, just the way this was constructed how it doesn't focus on Fox Rich the whole time. I like how it sort of subtly goes to her kids and gains their perspective. And, you know, they don't feel bad for what happened. They're just trying to do their best. And at the end of it, I think time is a portrait of resiliency and just staying resilient in all circumstances. And you see that throughout the film uh, through Fox Rich, who is just such a powerful person. And, you know, I hope time gets the win for documentary feature i think it will personally uh but after watching it i I was floored uh the last 15 minutes of this were some of the best documentary filmmaking i've seen ever extremely powerful um yeah just a great great documentary it's you know not a super light watch but if you watch it all the way through it's worth it and um it might inspire you and it might encourage you to maybe take a look at you know, what other families in the country are going through and what some people are going through. Louisiana specifically, which is the state that it's set in, is known to have the toughest sentencing of any state. Um, 
where often minor crimes you can get, you know, 20 to 30 years for. And a prison sentence is a death sentence in some circumstances. And it's important to understand that. Um, and, you know, this, the man in the dock, he, he's just a, he's a good guy and he is a good wife and kids. And, and, um, you know, they're just struggling to make it. And the poor guy spends years in prison while his children grow up without him. And that's something to think about. And time captures that all perfectly. So yeah, just a great documentary. Pete, do you have anything else to say about it? Uh, not really, but I mean, if you're going to watch any documentary from this year, uh, especially, especially since it is on prime, it's pretty accessible. Uh, watch time, please. Uh, I'm just advocating that across the board. Doesn't matter who you are. It's, it's a great real glimpse of resiliency and just staying with it at all costs. And it gives, like you were saying, it gives you a glimpse at the incarceration system in our country, which it's 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 it's, (laughs) yeah yeah Yeah. mad respect for fox rich though so um that brings us to another nominee for best documentary pete pete and i also enjoyed this one a lot my octopus teacher uh and it's a it's about a filmmaker forging an unusual an unusual friendship with an octopus living in a south african kelp forest learning as the animal shares the mysteries of our world and it's written and directed by pippa ehrlich and james reed and stars Craig Foster and Tom Foster. Um, This documentary is available on Netflix, and this one's a lot lighter than time. It's it's a really beautiful story of, you know, man and nature working together and learning about each other. Um, And it's about this guy, Craig Foster, who I don't know how he does, but day in and day out, he goes free diving in this kelp forest um, without any gear, really, but a camera. And he learns a lot from this octopus and he learns to love the octopus. And I think the octopus learns to love him. Um, octopi are famously asocial creatures, but also extremely smart. I mean, it's clear in the documentary as he explores it, it's very um, adept at searching for food and hiding from, from predators, which it has to do a couple times. And just this guy filming it every day, he gets a really good glimpse of this thing's life. And, um, you know, it's kind of life journey, how it evolves, how it progresses over time. It's it's a really beautiful portrait of uh, nature. And, you know, maybe in a way it's kind of a social justice film because it encourages us to protect that nature. Um, but it also encourages us to learn more about the world around us and get in tune. Because as this man uh, follows this octopus, he also changes and he learns maybe how to look at his relationship with his son, with his son differently. He bonds with his son. Um, So it's also a little bit of a portrait of human connection as well and how learning from other animals can inspire us to learn from each other. Um, Another great doc. I wouldn't be surprised if this one as well. And um, yeah, my one thing I'm going to say about this, I'm just really surprised that the guy that went out and filmed it every day is not considered a director or writer because he's the only one that speaks in this film as well. So like, did someone else tell him exactly what to film when he was out there every day and exactly what to say throughout the doc? I, I really don't understand why he's not the writer or director and why other people are. I'd have to do a little more research into the filmmaking process, but that's just the one thing I don't understand about the doc. That's not taking away anything from the doc itself. 
Yeah, yeah, we were talking about this before the episode. That that was kind of that was kind of odd. Uh, but yeah, like you were saying, uh, it gives us a glimpse into this environment that, as Americans, you know, we're not familiar with. Uh, this is off the southern coast of South Africa, in these beautiful kelp forests, which are wonderfully captured by Craig Foster throughout the documentary. And not only are you getting a glimpse into the life of uh, the, uh, the octopus as a species, but also these other species, uh, they bring up the pajama shark. Uh, there's a bunch of, there was this one creature that just feeds off of dead organisms. It kind of looks like a starfish. And I did some digging and stuff and it's just super cool, you know, seeing that stuff. Uh, and yeah, it, this gives, this really gave me a better appreciation of nature and, uh, how we need to preserve stuff like this and uh like you were saying these asocial creatures uh that you know he develops a bond with is is really beautiful to see and the progression of that uh is really cool and the reproduction and everything that goes into it uh you learn so much about the species so in a way it is a touching story like you were saying but it's also educational because you learn so much about this environment uh, that this octopus is living in, which is what I took away from it primarily. Yeah, I just want to say quick, um, kind of unrelated to this, but also related in a way. Uh, but at this point, I've watched 51 of the 56 Oscar-nominated projects this year. And um, it's been kind of like taking three film classes in a way, because I've learned so much just about so many subjects. Just by watching all these things, I've, I've learned about the American justice system. I've learned about police brutality. I've learned about Chilean nursing homes. I've learned about, you know, government conspiracy sandals, uh, scandals, you know, famine. I've learned about genocide, you know, instances of genocide. And this one, as Pete said, an incredibly educational documentary. I've learned about, you know, it's kind of really about an ecosystem. It, it follows one organism, but that organism's role in the ecosystem and how the ecosystem that that organism lives in, which is what, like a 200 square foot radius in this kelp forest um allows it to thrive and you know everything works off each other it's and it's beautiful in a sense but it's also important um to watch and understand how nature interacts and you know humans aren't that different from the octopus um a lot of the same basic needs and things we're also trying to accomplish in our own ways as well so i think that's how craig foster connects with the octopus so well um and there are some heartwarming moments, like when the octopus learns to trust him. I think that's incredible. So that yeah. is, yeah, sorry, Pete. No, I just wanted to say that everything that Craig Foster describes in this, he has footage of, which I think really uh, shows the power of him as a filmmaker and a storyteller in that sense. And, you know, everything that he's describing, you see, it's, it's, it's really cool because oftentimes, you know, with these like POV documentary type situations where someone's describing it, they just describe it and you're like, yeah, 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 whatever. But like the, the way that he has of shooting it is really cool. And he's always right there with the octopus following it for 350 days, I have to say, which is crazy. And you also follow the life of this octopus, which is important too. Uh, I think he said at one point in the documentary, I've covered the 80% of this octopus life. Yeah. Cause they it, live for about a year. Yeah. yeah, they live for about a year. So, uh, you know, really great glimpse into the life of an organism that we may see as wild. But, you know, if we're in South Africa, you know, it's right in our backyard. So something to consider. So, de yeah, honestly, dedication to both these past two documentaries we covered. 
Um, it's clear that they're not just documentaries that were made this year. They were filmed over long periods of time and uh, the people behind them put a lot of effort into them. And I think for that reason, it'll be either one of Time or My Octopus Teacher that gets recognized for best documentary. Um, and that brings us to our you know, fictionalized films. We're going to start with a historical piece called The United States versus Billie Holiday. And this film is actually released this year on Hulu. And it follows Billie Holiday during her career as she is targeted by the Federal Department of Narcotics with an undercover sting operation led by Black federal agent Jimmy Fletcher, with whom she had a tumultuous affair. Directed by Lee Daniels, pretty famous director, written by Susan Laurie Parks. And it's based on a book by Johan Hari, stars Andre Day, Travante Rhodes, Garrett Hedlund. The only reason this film is nominated for an Oscar is Andre Day. Um, it was nominated in the Best Actress category, and Andre Day has also taken home a couple of awards for her performance in this this year, including the Golden Globe for Best Actress, which we both predicted wrong. Um, and, you know, really, I didn't enjoy this film, to be honest. I think it overdoes a lot of parts that didn't need to be overdone about Billie Holiday. It focused on the a lot of the stuff that I wouldn't focus on if I was looking at Billie Holiday's career. And, um, but through it all, Andre Day does a great job capturing what they wanted her to capture of Billie Holiday. Um, and she, she shows raw emotion at times. She shows strength. She gives a vulnerability in certain scenes that, that is rarely seen um, from an actress, I would say, in, in a role. And, Overall, she just does a great job covering Billie Holiday. One critique I have of the film, if I haven't given you one already, is that I think it shows Billie Holiday shooting up heroin too many times. Like, I don't know. This is just something I've seen in a couple films this year, including Cherry. Um, if they're going to show a scene when they're shooting up heroin, just do it once, honestly. I think we'll get the gist that they're a heroin addict, probably. But I felt like they spent at least 10 minutes showing her shooting up heroin in what an hour and a half film, which is like over 10% of the film is probably her shooting up heroin just too much that that didn't need to be shown. And they focus a lot on the drug use, which is not, of course that was a part of Billie Holiday and ultimately led to her downfall, but that's not who Billie Holiday was as a person. She's a powerful figure in the civil rights movement and a powerful figure in music history. Um, and they, they sort of downplayed that a little bit, which definitely was the opposite effect of the film because it's meant to be a social justice piece, piece that kind of brings this, this woman up and her career and what she meant to the world. Um, yeah, it just felt a little confusing and muddled at times. I don't think they knew where they were going. Lee Daniels is a pretty famous acclaimed director, and I think this one was kind of one of his lesser films. But of course... Andre Day was amazing and she deserves to be nominated for best actress. So this film does deserve that Oscar nomination. I'll say. Yeah. Uh, I, that was really the only redeeming quality I took away from this film uh, and her singing, obviously, and the music that's in it. Fabulous. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, she's a phenomenal singer, uh, but you know, yeah. Like you were saying, you know, you want to make her out to be this super transformative figure who sparked a lot of the civil rights movement uh, and the progression of that. And then you have her shooting up heroin. You know, it's like, it's like, where do we, where do we stand on this? It, it, 
you know, it paints her as this bad figure too, but it paints the people around her as even worse, which, you know, so in that sense, it wasn't really an enjoyable film. I, I didn't enjoy my time watching this. Uh, pretty dark and dreary, I will say. And, you know, not living through Billy Holiday's time and watching this, you know, the things that I would take away, there would definitely be more negatives and positives. You know what I mean? So th- that's what I didn't like about this. It kind of painted her in a negative light. Uh, but regardless, Andre Day did a great job. Uh, I think Travante Rhodes did a great job as well. Uh, he's an actor who's in Moonlight, most notably. And he hasn't really done much, uh, but he was great in this as well. And there's a few other actors sprinkled in, like Garrett Hedlund. He's in it, but doesn't really show out or anything. Uh, yeah, it, I don't know, man. This kind of seems like a money grab for me uh, with Hulu. Because Hulu really hadn't put out... Hulu as a streaming service doesn't really put out that many quality movies. And I think this was their attempt at it. And they just didn't think about it enough. And they put Lee Daniels on, who obviously has had success in the past. And, you know, I'm, I'm not trashing this film by any means. It's 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 a it's a good film. It's I a worthwhile say. film to watch. Yeah, I'll completely agree. Yeah, but, uh, you know, I was I was pretty underwhelmed. Uh, but I could definitely see Andre Day taking home the Oscar uh, for her performance. And that would, you know, be well-deserved, of course. Um, but I think, yeah, even the film itself takes away a little bit from her performance. If the film was really great, I don't think there'd be a question. I think she'd win Best Actress. But the film was underdone. And, um, you know, the award might reflect that. For example, I just... It annoys me that it's it's a powerful civil rights film and they really only showed that for about, like, five, ten minutes. They might have spent more time on her drug use than on the actual civil rights fight itself. But in that light, I think that this film and Judas and the Black Messiah might make a really good pairing to watch together because they're both historically accurate depictions of the government trying to undermine and put civil rights leaders in prison. Um, stories which aren't really told that much. It's kind of like when people think about the civil rights movement, it's kind of like the South versus African-Americans and that struggle. But it's important to understand that while this, while all this was going on, there were departments of the government that were actively trying to arrest these leaders and undermine them um, just to keep the status quo, as you will. And they definitely went after Billie Holiday for her drug use, which the film made seem reasonable oddly enough. So yeah, anyway, that is the United States versus Billy holiday. And, um, our next film is another interesting contender, but you know, it definitely deserves that some of the nominations it got, it is a civil war veteran agrees to deliver a girl taken by the Kiowa people years ago to her aunt and uncle against her will. They travel hundreds of miles and face grave dangers as they search for a place that either can call home. And this film is News of the World, directed and written by Paul Greengrass, and also written by Luke Davies, and it stars Tom Hanks, Helena Zangle, and Tom Astor. All I can say about this film really is two things positive that I liked. One was the cinematography, which was outstanding. I would not be disappointed if this won for cinematography. Um... And it got nominated for stuff along those lines. This was a technically good film. Um, And then the other one was the chemistry between Tom Hanks and Helena Zangle. I thought they played really well off each other. 
if you don't know who Helena Zangel is, she is an up-and-coming German actress, kind of this child star. If you don't know who Tom Hanks is, you should go jump in a hole. I'm not going to tell you. Uh, yeah, Pete's laughing. He understands. Um, this is a classic pairing. Paul Greengrass did Captain Phillips. So him and Tom Hanks have a history together. This does not seem like Paul Greengrass's type of film to direct, though, and I think that was clear. He tried to do this kind of overarching long Western, and I think he got some of the right people technically to do that film, but there was something missing, and to be honest, I think it was the direction. Um, yeah, it was pretty boring at times for a lot of it, and I think it tried to get too sentimental and like emotionally preachy at times when when it just didn't didn't work out although i will say there's always this there's always this aspect of tom hanks films where he could play like maybe people that we wouldn't historically recognize as like important people and he makes them seem like some of the most important people in our nation's history um which he did with greyhound as well playing earlier this year on apple plus a ship captain but in this film he plays an ex-confederate captain but makes him seem like this powerful guy that's breaching the divide. Um, and I know Tom Hanks is drawn to those types of roles. So this is a classic Hanks role. But yeah, not much more I can say about this film. Technically beautiful, but something was missing. Yeah, uh, the score as well, I want to bring up. I liked the, I enjoyed the score. Oh, James well Newton score. Howard? Yeah, James yeah. Newton Howard's score. He did The Hunger Games too. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So that makes sense why I liked it. Uh, and like you said, the cinematography, but yeah, at, you know, like, I don't know if you've seen hostels, uh, the Christian Bale, Rosamund Pike movie, but like that, it's, I found myself very bored with this one. Uh, you know, the motivations didn't really seem there. Uh, Tom Hanks is kind of like, yep, I'll just protect this girl, whatever. You know, he, he sure he has nothing to lose. He doesn't really have a family or anything. His wife, except died. his wife, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which it seemed like she died while he was away with the girl. Yeah, or so, it never really, it never really went into that. Uh, that's another thing I didn't like about this. Uh, they didn't really spend time on character development. Uh, I was more just a linear plot throughout, uh, which I didn't really enjoy. Uh, you know. Like he's making a face. Pete's making a face right now. <laughs> like you were, like you were saying, technically a good film, uh, but you know, just from a script and story standpoint, it it just every that just dragged everything down for me and took a lot of away from it. And you know, this was a film that was highly publicized uh, on TV and everything. There were commercials everywhere, like news of the world, see it, and you know, <laughs> y- you don't have to see this movie. I'm I'm gonna flat out say that it was over advertised yeah for sure yeah, yeah for sure yeah that's pretty much all i have to say uh just disappointed when it comes down to it yeah i didn't expect uh you know one one review i saw said uh of course it's so naive to think that a tom hanks speech about coal miners in pennsylvania would be able to rouse this whole town to like overthrow itself i mean just scenes like that didn't really make much sense like realistically speaking um, and there's a lot of that, like Tom Hanks will say like something or like read a piece of news and everyone will like suddenly change their mind about the Confederate position in the Civil War and realize they were wrong and they need to heal or whatever. It just didn't make much sense. So anyway, Pete, you can introduce our next one. 
So that was 2020's News of the World. Uh, it's not available to stream, but if you would like to watch it, let us know at splashescinema at gmail.com. Uh, so the next film we're going to cover is 2020's Emma. And the plot reads, in 1800s England, a well-meaning but selfish young woman meddles in the love lives of her friends. Uh, it's directed by Autumn DeWilde, and the screenplay is by Eleanor C- Catton, uh, but it's based on. It's, sorry, uh, but it is based off the novel Emma by Jane Austen, uh, and it stars Anya Taylor Joy, Johnny Flynn, and Mia Goth. And currently, it's available on HBO Max. That's a weird cast. Weird, cast. yeah, but it worked. It worked. Yeah, a weird cast, I will say. Uh, but yeah, you know, it's a period piece. You don't have to do much with these. Uh, very selective audience, I will say. Uh, but unlike other period pieces, Emma is comedic. It's a comedy. Uh, and I think Anya Taylor-Joy really shine in this film in a year where she's dominated with The Queen's Gambit. And you were telling me this before, John, but this is outside her top four most known films on Google. Uh, which Why? is crazy. Why is that? <laughs> yeah, because because you know she's the star, so I think that's interesting. But uh, that I I enjoyed this film. It, it was a pleasing watch. You know, this is what you watch Sunday morning with your parents while sipping on some tea. You know, it's it's a good watch. Yes, I think it was delightful. <laughs> I watched this movie. You know, I think it was February with my mom and dad. Um, I didn't expect any Oscar nominations down the line, but I'm glad it got it. Um, it deserves Oscar nominations a lot more than some of the other films that we've already talked about. Even um, I think it was nominated for best makeup and best costuming, both well-deserved. I mean, a lot of period pieces do typically get those nominations. Um, the set design was really good. A lot of the background elements worked out, but, but as Pete said, Anya Taylor-Joy was expected to carry and she did. Um, she's definitely an up and coming actress I thought the, yeah, it was really funny satire. I laughed out loud multiple times. It um, it kind of portrays this woman meddling in the love lives of other people and eventually, you know, learning to find love herself. That's a pretty classic story. Jane Austen's wrote some fabulous novels and, uh, you know, critically acclaimed novels and Emma's one of them. So, yeah, I'm not going to credit the screenplay or anything because I think it was basically all based on the book, but it was well done. And I, yeah, like Pete said, it was, it was delightful. Um, it, it probably didn't deserve any more than it got, but it, it's a good film for two Oscar nominations. And I wouldn't be surprised if it takes home either of those awards. Um, yeah, it's, it's a joy. It's just a, it's a joy to watch. It's, it's very light, very funny, not too deep, but I guess it could teach some valuable lessons if you looked for those. <laughs> So, yeah, and and on top of the cast that we mentioned, uh, it's important to note that Josh O'Connor is in this as well. Oh, of course it is, Pete. Uh, yeah. Pr- Prince Charles in the Crown, and he does a great job as well. And I think that's an actor who we're going to see in future years, really on the up and up. Uh, he's super talented. Uh, but yeah, like you were saying, with the production design, I love the production design in this. I I loved how they used pastel colors and these sort of flower patterns as well uh just throughout the film uh and i think that really carried it in some sense because every shot was essentially a painting of this sort of uh palace that they live in 
And I, I enjoyed that about the film. But, you know, like you were saying, not going to credit anyone because uh, this is Jane Austen. This is straight from her book. Uh, but yet again, uh, another one of those being recycled back uh, for this audience. And, you know, I feel like we're getting this like Victorian England renaissance currently uh, with all the stuff that's coming out. And, you know, maybe there's a crowd for it. Uh, I know I'm not in that crowd, but my mom is. So, uh, I mean, if you're a if you're a middle aged woman and you're looking for someone to watch, give Emma a watch. Yeah. And and as Pete kind of mentioned, this is pretty stock full of like lighter, a little less known British actors that we've all seen before. So I recognize like almost everyone in this film. I just wanted to give a quick shout out to Anya Taylor-Joy and Johnny Flynn. I enjoyed their dynamic, but that the. the The dynamic I enjoyed the best was between uh, Anya Taylor-Joy and the character of Miss Bates, who's this older woman, kind of a little like aloof, doesn't really know what's going on, but just wants to be included. And uh, Emma kind of learns to be more accepting through this character. And uh, Miss Bates is played played by Miranda Hart, who played agent codename Amber Valentine during in the movie spy with melissa mccarthy and uh i you know i just love that movie so i wanted to give a quick shout out if my mom's listening i'm sure she'll appreciate that i love that dynamic and i thought that it was it was probably the best like comedy part of the film so that was emma pete you can do the next one too uh so uh, the next film we're going to cover is judas and the black messiah uh it's a 2020 release And the plot reads, Bill O'Neill infiltrates the Black Panther Party per FBI agent Mitchell and J. Edgar Hoover. As party chairman Fred Hampton ascends, falling for a fellow revolutionary and wrote, a battle wages for O'Neill's soul. Uh, This is a true story. Uh, And it's directed by Shaka King. And it's written by Will Burson and Shaka King as well. And it stars Daniel Kaluuya, Lakeith Stanfield, and Jesse Plemons. And this was one of the ones that Warner Brothers and HBO Max released uh, in contingency on HBO Max, but those last for a limited amount of time and releasing in February, it's left the streaming service. So it's currently not available to stream. But again, if you would like to watch it, let us know. Uh, And this is a this is a film that people are saying is already one of the best of 2021. Easy, Uh, easy. And I already I agree with that, too. Yeah, and it uh, garnered nominations for Daniel Kayula, who really shines in this. He won the Golden Globe for Best Supporting Actor already. Wait, uh, I just have a question, Pete. How do we pronounce it? Because I'm not sure. Is it Daniel Kaluuya or Daniel Kaluuya? Kaluuya? Kaluuya. Okay. Kaluuya. I just need to know. You know, as a cinema buff, <laughs> yeah. I got to yeah. know these things. <laughs> yeah, so Daniel Kaluuya got nominated, uh, as well as Lakeith Stanfield, who is an actor who I know we both love. He does a bunch of secondary characters in big time movies. Uh, biggest probably Knives Out. Uh, so yeah, uh, just a great film and a story that needs to be told as well. Uh, Fred Hampton, who was the super polarizing figure, if you don't know, leader of the Black Panther Party in Chicago. And, you know, the FBI kind of went behind his back, like we were talking about with Billy holiday to stop him. They saw his influence was spreading. He was getting a lot of groups outside of the black community to join him against the cops and against the government. And the FBI was like, no more. So they got this 
sort of criminal and Bill O'Neill played by played wonderfully by Lakeith Stanfield in this to infiltrate the black Panther party. He had no allegiance to the black Panthers before he didn't, he didn't give a shit about them. Uh, but so he infiltrates this and, you know, there's a lot of blackmailing that goes on between Jesse Plemons and Lakeith Stanfield. And you see that throughout the film. And uh, I like the way footage was used in this as well. Uh, I think Shaka King did a great job of doing that. Uh, taking real footage from the real Bill O'Neill and placing it next to Lakeith Stanfield in precisely accurate uh, shooting proportions and such, which was really cool. Uh, But yeah, essentially FBI, they kill Fred Hampton and they raid his house in the middle of the night. And Lakeith Stanfield's character, Bill O'Neill, kind of set this all up. And you didn't really know that uh, until a few years after this happened. Uh, And this film really uncovers it in a way that doesn't seem biased in any way, uh, sort of. I think it's a really truthful objective look at this situation yeah um and i just have a couple takeaways here first of all when fred hampton was killed he was 21 years old that's crazy to think about that's me in a year first of all mad respect to him for accomplishing all that he did before he was 21 he was just a powerful figure and a man that it's clear was not really out for any violence or anything he just loved his community and he loved his people and he was looking to you know ensure they had more rights And I think it's a powerful story, and I'm glad it was told. Second takeaway, I just wanted to quick touch on this uh, Oscars debate. It's it's one of the more notable things that's being talked about in this award season was uh, Lakeith Stanfield's nomination for Best Supporting Actor, which, of course, he deserves a nomination. It's just interesting, though, because he hasn't been nominated in any other award ceremony for supporting. He's always been slated in the lead role. Um. And, you know, now he, him and Daniel Kaluuya are competing for Best Supporting Actor when I would say Daniel Kaluuya really turned in the outstanding performance in this film. And I think he will win that award. I just think it's interesting that they're against each other when one was essentially a lead that had more screen time, but a a worse performance. Still great performance, though. And the other, Daniel Kaluuya, was definitely a supporting actor that had limited screen time, but a great performance. So it's going to be interesting to see. It'd be a shame if Daniel Kulia didn't win because Lakeith Stanfield took votes from him. Um, and we could see that happening. I'm not sure. But it's clear from the nominations that this film was re- really well-rounded, pretty great in every aspect. Pete mentioned the footage. Excellent. I love that it kind of brought the nonfiction aspect more to light because people need to be reminded that this was a real story. None of this is really fictionalized. Um, and yeah, also very unbiased. And I, I enjoyed that. Um, but even from the unbiased aspect, it's clear what the FBI was doing was horrific and wrong. Um, one stat that stands out is that final raid in which Fred Hampton was killed. There were 99 shots from the police and one shot from the Black Panthers. And that one shot was because a guy got shot and discharged his shotgun into the ceiling when he got shot. Um, and then everyone that wasn't killed in that raid was then arrested for trying to kill the police. Just terrible, awful. Um, nothing we can really do about it now, but we can understand why people are still mad about it. I'm, I'm mad about it. Um, makes me sick, but it, it definitely showed that, for example, our, our lead character, the Judas was, you know, just a man. He had 
he had things that he was trying to escape from and things that he was trying to achieve. Um, and he struggles throughout the film and that's really the dynamic. And then, um, I mean, it's not really a spoiler by saying that the man later spoke his truth to a documentary and then killed himself that night. Um, and they even mentioned that in the film. So it's just a really sad story, but it's a story that needs to be told and it was told wonderfully. Um, yeah, you, you can't really make a much better movie from a historical point point of view. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I don't think this will take home best picture, but I can definitely see it being a contender. Uh, oh, it is a contender. Yeah. 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 Uh, just from, you know, like we were saying with Minari and Nomadland, those are more small budget stuff. Uh, but in terms of the big budget stuff, this is definitely the leader for me. Uh, I think this was a great film that for HBO Max and Warner Brothers to do uh, early in the year, uh, especially with the rise of the Black Lives Matter movement and everything that's going on in the world today. This needed to be released. And I'm really glad it was uh, because, you know, aside from being a movie and being entertaining and us wanting to watch it, you're also learning things. And that's important. Uh, and like John was saying, from these nominees, you're learning so much. And this is a this is a lesson that needs to be told in schools everywhere. Uh, super important film and well done as well from Shaka King. Uh, directorial debut, I have to say too, uh, which is super impressive. I think, uh, yeah, maybe before making the United States versus Billy Holiday, Lee Daniels should have watched this and it could have made his movie a lot better because it would have been more serious and less about the issues with the character. Um, because Fred Hampton was just a man as well. And it's definitely clear he, he had some, some faults, but, but overall a really powerful figure in our history. And, and that was acknowledged. So Pete, do you have anything else to say? No. All right. That was Judas and the black Messiah 2021. I'm sure it will be after the Oscars at some point released back on HBO Max and available for streaming. So check it out then or check it out whenever you want. Um, and that brings us to our last film of the day, which was completely different, but also just as powerful. Ex extremely moving film. I watched it this morning um, and it's The Father. And it is, it is about a man who refuses all assistance from his daughter as he ages, as he tries to make sense of his changing circumstances. He begins to doubt his loved ones, his own mind, and even the fabric of, of his reality. Written and directed by Florian Zeller, also written by Christopher Hampton, stars Anthony Hopkins, Olivia Coleman, and Mark Gaddis. This was crazy. It was mind-bending. It was emotional. It was harrowing, and it was heartbreaking. Um, Anthony Hopkins, as Pete said, turned in a god-tier performance. I still don't know if he beat his performance in Sons of the Lambs, but I'm not even going to compare them because they were both great. I he's actually what I'm re when I'm reading. If it's not going to be Chadwick Boseman, I think it's going to be Anthony Hopkins actually to take home the Best Actor award. Um, but Anthony Hopkins is just one piece of this film. It was a fabulous film, garnered six Oscar nominations. This, just like the last film we talked about, was well-rounded. One of the favorites for Best Picture, potentially. Um, I just love the the mind-bending elements to it. It's kind, It was kind of like a horror film in a way, and this psychological thriller, but all real life. I mean, it was from the point of view of a man with dementia. And so it's really impossible to gl get a gl glimpse into that mind, but 
I think that they did as close of a job as you can get to getting a glimpse in that inside that mind. It was very confusing. It was hard to follow. Characters kept changing. Circumstances kept changing. The setting changed multiple times. You know, c- characters were getting confused. And you understand both the frustration of the character himself, the main character, which was Anthony Hopkins, and his family, his daughter, that had to deal with his dementia and and how he didn't really know what was going on and was getting angry about that. Um, a powerful film. This touches close to home with me. My my grandmother had Alzheimer's and I think that she definitely probably experienced a lot of this stuff. And it, yeah, this deserves a lot of love. Fabulous. Yeah. Uh, I'm just going to straight up say it. This is one of the best films I've seen from 2020. Uh, it's a five-star film for me. And, you know, like you were saying, dealing with dementia and shooting it from his perspective. I've never seen that done in film before. And the way that Florian Zeller did that while confusing you while also having a grounded story. I think that takes super talent, super talent. And, you know, he's a playwright too. So he hasn't delved into movies at all. Uh, But, you know, props, props Florian Zeller. Uh, I'm really excited to see what he does next. Uh, and yeah, uh, Olivia Coleman also working off of Hopkins was phenomenal. Uh, that's another actress who's on the up and up uh, just with the crown and Sherry has an Oscar uh, and she was nominated for this as well. Uh, so clearly the Academy is loving this film. Uh, and, you know, in popular circles, people don't really know about this film, but, you know, I've been promoting it and promoting it because this is truly uh, one of the best films of 2020 that can really hit home for some people, like you were saying. John and uh, yeah, just script is there. The way it's shot as well is just standard. You know, it's not flashy or anything. Uh, the cinematographer doesn't try to do crazy stuff with camera angles or anything. It's it's pretty standard in the way it's shot. And you know, I think what carries it is the story and this uses of perspective and Anthony Hopkins' performance. Uh, and that's what I love about the father. I can't really think of anything bad about this film. It was wonderfully paced as well uh, at a relatively short runtime. Yeah, completely agree. Um, just powerful, super powerful, and the best film I've seen in, in in a little while for sure. It 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 this to me this film, Minari, Nomadland, Judas and the Black Messiah, were the four best. Uh, oh, Sound of Metal, I'll include in that category, too. If one of those five wins Best Picture, I'm a happy man. If it's not one of those five, I'm a sad man. So it, it, I'm going to lay it out for the Oscars. If you're listening to this, you can give it to the father. I will accept that. So uh, please take that into consideration, although I know you've already voted. Um, <laughs> but anyway, yeah, there's not much more I'm going to say about this. Um this is a film, though, that for sure, if anyone watched and, and wants to talk about, I'd love to talk about. I could go on about the technical elements of this film and, and the perspective for days. Um, really well-rounded, really, really gifted film. And, and in what's been a very confusing year. So that was The Father. Um, and now we're going to get into the predictions, which hopefully... I'm going for, fingers crossed, 100% right, but I'll probably end up somewhere around 50% right, just like with the Golden Globes. Actually, we're like, what, 
thirty percent right on the Golden Globes. Yeah, we we did terribly. We did terribly. We did. We were so bad. <laughs> so you don't need to go back to that episode and compare <laughs> our predictions with the actual awards. But we are going to release this episode tomorrow or today, depending on how fast Pete edits. Sorry, Pete. Um, so yeah, let's just get into it. And you heard it here first, Splash of Cinema, the number one podcast for award show predictions. And we're aiming to do that on this episode right here. So the first category, um, I'm just going to go a little bit random here in the category order, but I'm going to end with what I consider the big categories. So our first category is going to be live action short film. Um, I can proclaim to have seen all the nominees in this category, which is cool. And the nominees are Feeling Through, The Letter Room, which we talked about earlier, The Present, Two Distant Strangers, and White Eye. Uh, These films are all important and cover a variety of powerful subjects, including, yeah, incarceration system, the interaction between Israel and Palestine, police brutality, immigration, a lot of big things covered here. And I'm glad the Oscars decided to recognize some social justice films in this category. So, yeah, I'll just get into it. I'll predict first, Pete, and then you can follow. Um, so my prediction is going to be Two Distant Strangers, which is a film covering uh, police brutality and a really cool concept. It's kind of like a time loop concept where this character repeats incidents with the police over and over. It's 19 minutes, and I highly recommend it's on Netflix. So, Two Distant Strangers. Pete? Uh, I've, I've only seen The Letter Room, I'm going to be honest. But uh, based off your takes, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be a terrible person and take your takes here. Uh, <laughs> you can, shut, you so, can shut your mouth. <laughs> all right. All right. No, you want to do that to me? All right. All right uh, yeah, I'll no. pick two, two Distant Strangers, too. Sorry I don't have the time that you have, John. Sorry I don't have the time. Right. Yeah, I'm sorry that you don't have like an hour and a half to watch all the short films in a row. Um. And this category, if you haven't seen them all, is even more disappointing. And I know you haven't seen them all. So (laughs) these films are like this next category we're going to cover. The films are like six to ten minutes tops. This is short film animated. And the films are Burrow, which is made by Pixar animators, available on Disney Plus. Genius Loci, which is a really cool uh, French film. If Anything Happens, I Love You, which we mentioned earlier in the pod and covered. Opera, also covered, and Yes People, which frankly, to be honest, is the worst film on this entire Oscars uh, slate of nominees of all the films. And I haven't watched the other five, but I can just say that Yes People was not a super good short film. Don't know why it was nominated, especially considering some of the films that were shortlisted but not nominated. Anyway, so don't watch Yes People. But... I'm going to pick just because of its message and um, it's kind of emotional weight. I'm going to pick if anything happens, I love you. Yeah, I'm going to go with you there as well. Uh, We covered it earlier in the pod if you want to go back and listen to our review. Uh, But I'm also going to go with if anything happens, I love you uh, on Netflix as well. So then I will do the next category, our last short category, if you will. And this is the documentary short subject category. These films generally range from like 25 to 45 minutes. Um, 
I actually think the cutoff somewhere like 43 minutes for what is considered a documentary versus a documentary short. Once again, I have seen all the nominees in this. Oh, I didn't mention. I also saw all the animated shorts. Um, but once again, I've seen all the nominees in this. I believe Pete's seen... Pete, you want to say it? Zero? Uh, I haven't seen any, John. So if you, you go off there. my takes, whatever. I don't care. But anyway, the nominees are Colette, which is a film about a Holocaust survivor and how she deals with the loss of her family members and revisiting concentration camp. Um, a concerto is a conversation, which is really cool. Chris Bowers is a African-American com- composer and it's his music composed with his grandfather telling about how times have changed since the civil rights. That's a cool film. Um, Do not split, which is a 35 minute documentary covering uh, different clips of the Hong Kong, Hong Kong protests hunger ward, which is a 40 minute film. I actually watched today on the, on a, it follows a, a doctor who has to help out, starving children in the most prominent of the Yemeni uh, hunger wards and a love song for Latasha, which is a tribute to a victim of police brutality. Um, And that's available on Netflix. My favorite, well, not my favorite, my prediction, which is also probably my favorite is a concerto was a conversation. Um, I just thought it was a really cool concept. And normally those kind of revolutionary type films are the ones that win. So that's my prediction for documentary short subject. Yeah. I'm actually going to agree with you there, but not just because you said it. Because you just Uh, read about it. (laughs) No, I I have actually heard great things about this uh, just on Letterboxd and just looking at the nominees, looking them up Uh, and super interesting too. And, you know, I like music. So uh, a concerto is a conversation is going to be the winner for me as well. I feel you there, Pete. I do. Um, that brings us to our next category. At this point, I'm just going to kind of go random through the normal categories. Uh, visual effects. And the nominees in this one are Love and Monsters, which is kind of like this apocalypse, definitely watched, definitely made by people that love the movie Zombieland type movie. Um, great visual effects. The Midnight Sky, which is George Clooney directed, available on Netflix. That's kind of a space apocalypse or post-apocalyptic world space movie. Mulan, which Pete and I talked about on a previous pod. Terrible. The One and Only Ivan, which is Brian Cranston's relationship with a gorilla, available on Disney+. And Tenet, Christopher Nolan. We've talked about this film a couple times, probably. Pete and I both like Tenet. Uh, my pick is going to be Tenet. The visual effects were great, and I think that this is going to be the Academy recognizing Nolan this year through this uh, award. Yeah, I, I don't think Tenet is going to win another category. I'm going to go out and say it. Uh, maybe something for sound, but I, I even doubt it in there. Uh, so I think it's going to go to Tenet as well uh, for visual effects. But I heard Love and Monsters does have great visual effects. It does. I have also seen all the nominees in this category as well. Um. That brings us to Sound, which I've also seen all the nominees for. Um, nominees are Greyhound, which is a Tom Hanks film as he plays a ship captain in World War One. Mank, just technically a great film. We talked about it in a previous pod. News of the World, which we talked about today. Soul, a really powerful Disney animated film that we are, we've talked about as well. And Sound of Metal, which is... 
going to be my pick, to be frank. Sound is in the title, so hopefully it takes it. But yeah, the sound design and sound mixing was just fabulous. Just a quick background on this award. Sorry, Pete. Don't mean to cut you off before your prediction. Uh, I think Hollywood going into this year used to have the categories of best sound mixing and best sound design and they or best sound editing. And they decided to mix those into best sound just because I don't think most film viewer, uh, most normal viewers, people that watch the Oscars even really understood the difference. And I think it, the difference between those two was often muddy in many circumstances anyway. So they combined it into sound. I'm fine with that. Um, Sound of metal, though best sound, yeah, easy. Yeah, uh, you know, being being an advocate for people in the film industry who don't get much love at award shows, I'm kind of mad that they put these two together. But at the end of the day, they're getting recognition, which is great. So you'll see a sound mixer and a sound editor up on stage, most likely. Uh, and I'm gonna go with sound of metal as well. Uh, just the way they went in and out of Riz Ahmed's perspective with no sound and sound was super well done. Uh, and yeah, sound is in the title, like you said. So just to be clear, Pete and I have had all the same picks so far. Um, next up, which, you know, is fair because I think all these picks we picked so far are definite favorites. Um, next category that we're going to talk about is best production design. Some great nominees in here. I've also seen all of them. Uh, the Father, which we just talked about. Really well-rounded, fabulous film. Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, great film on Netflix with Chadwick Boseman, Viola Davis, Mank, News of the World, and Tenet. This is this is an interesting one. To be honest, I think they're going to give this one to Mank. It got so many nominations. Um, they're going to give it an award for something, right? So just shooting in the dark, I'm going to pick production design, and that would be well-deserved. But then again, I could also see The Father... I'm going to give this one to Mank, though. Yeah, I, I'm going to go with Mank as well. Uh, looking at the other nominees, a lot of them take place outside, which is kind of interesting, like News of the World getting a production design. I'm not really sure about that. Uh, and, you know, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom takes place in one place, uh, so I don't think they're going to give it to that either. But, you know, I think Mank really captures the 20s and the 30s of Hollywood really well through their production design, and I think that was crucial to the movie. Uh, so I'm going to give it to Mank for production design as well. Next up, best original song. This is a contentious one. I've also seen all the nominees for this one as well. So the songs are, and the movies they're from, Fight for You, which is from Judas and the Black Messiah, Hear My Voice, which is from Trial of the Chicago 7, Husavik, which is from Eurovision Song Contest, The Story of Fire Saga, <laughs> That's a Will Ferrell movie, if you don't know what that is. Kind of funny. IOC, which means scene. And it's an Italian song from The Life Ahead. Uh, music by Diane Warren, who's won a couple of these Oscars already. And Speak Now, which is from One Night in Miami with Leslie Odom Jr. Based on what I've seen from all the films, I think this is between three for this one. Really, it's basically three people contending. And that's Husavik. Weirdly enough, Speak Now, an IOC scene. Um, in my opinion, the best song is probably IOC, but I'm going to I'm gonna differ here from the Golden Globe and say this one goes to Speak Now from One Night in Miami. Um, 
Fun fact, Leslie Odom Jr. is the first male in film history to receive nominations in the same year for song and acting. Um, Leslie Odom's also an acting um, nominee for One Night in Miami. I think that's really cool and speaks to him more than anything else. But yeah, I'm going to say this is One Night in Miami's Oscar best song. I'm going to go with Fight for You from uh, from Judas and the Black Messiah. I like that song a lot. I like her as an artist. Uh, and, you know, she's she's gotten a lot of love from the Grammys in the past few years. So uh, working towards that EGOT, which we like to see. Uh, so I'm going to go Fight for You from Judas and the Black Messiah. Pete, just uh, to our normal listeners, please explain what the EGOT is. Uh, so the EGOT is... Emmy, Grammy, Oscar, Tony. It represents the big four awards in America. And I'm not, I think I might be mistaken, but John Legend might have an EGOT, uh, all four, or at least three of them. Uh, and if you get all four, that's crazy milestone. It means you've excelled in TV, film, and theater, uh, which is, that's a huge milestone in your career. Uh, if one does that. So that is what I mean when I say EGOT. Cool. Thank you, Pete, for our lesson. Um, next, we're going to talk about the contenders for best music, which is also known as best original score. And I've once again seen all five nominees in this one, as has Pete. Uh, and the nominees are De Five Bloods, Mank, Minari, News of the World, and Soul. This one's an interesting one. Uh, I think it's Defy Blood's only nomination, weirdly enough, which is just horrendous because that's a great movie, Spike Lee. But I'm going to give this one to Soul. Um, it's going to carry on from Soul's Golden Globe win for best original score. I mean, the score was like almost all of Soul. The music plays an important part in that. And uh, Trent Reznor, Atticus Ross, and John Batiste are going to take home the Oscar in, in, in my prediction so yeah i'm gonna go with soul as well uh Reznor and ross are some of my favorite composers working today if you don't know about them uh used to be in the nine inch nails used to be them uh a lot of times these rock artists do go into film scores oddly enough uh we've seen it with johnny greenwood of radiohead working with pta uh and atticus and ross do a great job with it they did the social network uh, they did the show Watchmen on HBO, which I highly recommend. Uh, so, yeah, I think they're going to take it home for this, as well as John Batiste, too, uh, who's a phenomenal artist. Next, we're covering best makeup and hairstyling. This is the first of the categories that we've covered today that I have not seen all the films for. I have not seen Pinocchio, to be honest, um, and I don't know if I really want to, but I will for the spirit of it. Um, the nominees are Emma, which we covered earlier, Hillbilly Elegy. Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, Mank, and Pinocchio. Um, interesting contenders here. This one's a pretty shot-in-the-dark uh, category to, to really predict, I would say. But from what I saw, I really enjoyed the makeup and hairstyling in Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. I thought they were really well done. So that's my pick. Pete? Uh, you know, I'm going to go with the period piece here. Oftentimes, these do win. Uh, especially taking place in Victorian times as Emma does. So I'm going to go with Emma, period. All right. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> um, and that will bring us to our next category, which is costume design. 
Might as well cover these two in tandem because they off often go together. Actually, four of the nominees for best makeup and hairstyling are also nominees for best costume design. I feel like the Academy just groups those together. But um, I have, yeah, once again, Pinocchio's in this though, so I haven't seen all these. But Emma, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, Mank, Mulan, and Pinocchio are your nominees for best costume design. God, I don't know why Mulan's nominated for anything. That's just awful to me. It was a terrible movie. Please don't see it. Um, but this one, this one's interesting. I'm going to give this one to Emma, the period piece. Um, as Pete said, with the pastels and everything, I think the costumes are really well done. I mean, yeah, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom is good. That would be the other one, but I'm going to say Emma. I'm going to go with Mank here. Uh, and I'll tell you why. Oh, Amanda uh, Seyfried's costume? Yeah, there were a bunch of just crazy costumes in Mank uh, that I think were really well executed based on the characters. And you have to take that into account who they're being uh, dressed on. So I think it's going to go to Mank, although I would not be surprised if Ma Rainey's Black Bottom or Emma took this one home. Okay, so that's Pete's pick, Mank. We've now differed on a couple, which is, you know, good. Good to have some contention here. Um, our next category is going to be Best Film Editing. Uh, first of all, The Father is our first contender. Nomadland is our next. Promising Young Woman, Sound of Metal, and The Trial of the Chicago 7. I've seen all five of these. All five are really good watches and also contenders for Best Picture. Um, based on what I saw from the film editing in particular, I'm going to say The Father, edited by Yorgos Lampranos. And not, as Pete said to me the other day, Yorgos Lanthimos, who's a, a director. He's like, this seems like very good because this seems like a classic Yorgos. And I was like, it's not the same Yorgos, Pete. Don't just name associate. Um, <laughs> but this is also the subject of a really weird letterbox list called Movies Edited by Someone Named Yorgos with the title starting with The Fa, starring Olivia Coleman playing a character named Anne. And the other film was The Favorite. Um, I just think that's crazy that The Favorite and The Father are so much similar. So much similar. But anyway, The Father. Sorry to diverge there. Uh, to, to add to that list, though, uh, it said in a category where Glenn Cl Close was also nominated. Oh, so there's yeah. even there's even more specificity to that list. Uh, I, I feel like Olivia Coleman's the bane of Glenn Close's existence. Yeah, <laughs> yeah for real. Uh, but I'm going to go with the father as well, uh, Yorgos Lamprinos. Uh, I thought he did a great job with it. And, you know, like we were saying earlier with perspective, I think without the editing, the way that it was done, the film would not have been conveyed. Uh, and that had a huge part to do with the film. You know, I'm glad nothing like Bohemian Rhapsody is on this list because that is some of the worst editing ever. And it oh, won, God, dude. Pete. I will okay. never get over that. Let's All not. Right. Let, all right. Um, oh, and just another quick side note with this. I was recently watching this video, like, which they do. They've done a lot over COVID times in which, like, a lot of the major Oscars contenders, including Chloe Zhao and, like, Paul Racy, people like that, were talking about what they're thankful for within their film production teams, like the under under thanked aspects. And I thought it was funny. It was definitely scripted by like Hollywood. They definitely gave them like what things to thank. And Chloe Zhao thanked film editors. And I think this is funny because in her film that got nominated for the Oscar, she edited it herself. So that's just a little side note. 
but I love I love Chloe Zhao. So our next category is going to be best international feature film. Um, and there are some good nominees in this from what I've heard. Unfortunately, this is the category I've least watched as four of the five films I still have to watch are in this category. Um, and the nominees are Another Round, which is Denmark's submission, Better Days, which is Hong Kong's submission, Collective, Romanian submission, also a nominee for Best Documentary, The Man Who Sold His Skin, which is Tunisia's submission, and Quo Vadis Eda, which is Bosnia and Herzegovina's submission about the um, genocide that occurred there during the Bosnian War. I've seen about half that film so far, so I can speak a little bit to it. But my pick is going to be Another Round, which is fantastic film. Um, surprised it actually didn't get nominated in other categories besides Best Director. But I think just the Best Director nomination itself speaks for how well this film's been received by the Academy. And I think it takes home the best international feature film. Yeah. I'm going to stick with you there. Uh, another round at a Denmark. It's cool to see like Bosnia and Herzegovina and Hong Kong get uh, nominations though. Uh, oftentimes it's like France, you know, Germany, a bunch of those big time countries. Uh, but it's cool to see the little countries getting some spotlight. But yeah, definitely shout out as well to Covidis, Ada and collective, which I've just heard great things about. Um, People are raving about those films, and those are supposedly two of the best films in the entire slate. So, um, next category is best documentary feature, um, and the nominees are Collective, which we just talked about, Crip Camp, which is on Netflix about the disability rights movement, The Mole Agent, uh, which is was actually Chile's submission for best international film, didn't make that cut. Um, My Octopus Teacher, which is, you know, as we said on Netflix, we covered, and Time, available on Prime, which was our hidden gem. Um, I'm already going to rule out the Mole Agent just because if it couldn't also get nominated with Collective on Best International Feature, I don't know why it would be beat out that for a documentary. And I'm just going to go straight for Time. Um, Time was fantastic. I think it's a race between that and My Octopus Teacher, but... I like time better, so I'm just going to go with personal preference there. Yeah, I'm going to go with time as well from Garrett Bradley. Uh, did things in the documentary genre that we've never seen before, and I think that's why it's going to come home with it. So yeah, time. Um, And that brings us to some of our big categories here. Um, next one is Best Animated Feature Film, and I've seen all the nominees here which the nominees are Onward, available on Disney+, Plus, Over the Moon, available on Netflix, A Shaun the Sheep movie, Farmageddon, available on Netflix, which is cool because it's a very different animation style. Um, Soul, Pixar, available on Disney+, Plus, and Wolf Walkers, which we covered in a previous episode. Great film. I'm going to say, though, it's Soul. The Academy has a really storied relationship with pixar and soul would be well deserved to win this category um it's the heavyweight and might be the easiest category to predict yeah no doubt uh soul for me i don't think it's a competition at this point i'm pretty sure everyone who follows the awards knows it's going to be soul so yeah yeah that brings us to best cinematography and the nominees are judas and the black messiah 
Mank, News of the World, Nomadland, and The Trial of the Chicago 7. This one's an interesting one. Um, we talked about News of the World cinematography, which is fantastic. But I'm going to say Nomadland, which that was just amazing, beautiful, quiet cinematography. And I love that. Yeah, I'm going to go with Nomadland as well. Uh, I think in the artistic categories, I think Nomadland is going to sweep, or at least I hope they do. Uh, so I'm going to go with Nomadland. I think it really captured the Western American really well. And next is going to be Best Actress in a, in a Supporting Role. And the nominees are Maria Bakalova from Borat Subsequent Movie Film, Delivery of Prodigious Bribe to American Regime for Make Benefit Once Glorious Nation of Kazakhstan. That's a mouthful. I think that's the longest film title nominated for the Oscars in, in a while. Um, Glenn Close for Hillbilly Elegy, Olivia Coleman for The Father, Amanda Seyfried for Mank, Yeo Jung Yoon for Minari. This is a stacked race here. Um, wouldn't be disappointed with a couple of these, but this is a shot in the dark. I'm just going to say it goes to Yeo Jung Yoon for Minari. She was outstanding as the grandmother. Yeah, uh, I'm going to go with her as well. Uh, that's my favorite performance from that film. Uh, but Steve Stephen Yun also did get a nomination, which is important to note. Uh, but yeah, I think Yeo Jung Yoon is going to take home the Oscar uh, for the actors in Minari for sure. Next category is actor in a supporting role. Um, this is also stacked as well. Sometimes I think the supporting performances are better than the leading performances, weirdly enough. And the nominees are Sasha Baron Cohen for The Trial of the Chicago 7, Daniel Kaluuya for Judas and the Black Messiah, Leslie Odom Jr. for One Night in Miami, Paul Racy for Sound of Metal, Lakeith Stanfield for Judas and the Black Messiah. This one, clear cut, Daniel Kaluuya, that's it. Yeah. Yeah, Daniel Kaluuya. But I do like how Paul Racy got a nomination uh, on a film that focused mostly on Riz Ahmed. He's my favorite nomination of any nomination in this awards race because he's been overlooked so often this award season. And he's a child of deaf adults, Coda. So he was the perfect uh, fit for this role. I was reading earlier today about how he sent in audition tapes for this and worked so hard in them. And he's been in the industry for 40 years, right? And hasn't gotten anything big. And um, Darius Martyr had several high profile actors go for this role that he refused because they didn't have experience with uh, deaf people. And then he couldn't find someone. So he was going to go with a high profile actor. And at the last minute, Paul Racy's wife, who's his agent called the production team and was like asking them what was going on. They're like, yeah, we haven't found anyone. We're going to go with this uh, with a high profile actor. And she's like, well, have you seen like my husband's audition tape? No, they hadn't. They overlooked a lot of the audition tapes. So she had them go and look for the audition tape. Within five minutes, he was on the phone with Darius Martyr and had the part. Um, and now he's getting nominated. So just a cool story in Hollywood. Great actor. Fabulous film. Now we are getting to some big awards here. Um, I wanted to end with the awards considered the uh, prestigious five, as you will. And only, I believe, two films have ever taken home all five of these awards, which are Silence of the Lambs and um, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. And the awards are for Best Screenplay, Best Director, Best Actor, Best Actress, and Best Picture. 
Um, we're going to start with best screenplay, and there's two elements to this. So first, we're going to go over best original screenplay, um, which is not adapted from anything. I think it's pretty evident from the title. The best original screenplay contenders are Judas and the Black Messiah, Minari, Promising Young Woman, Sound of Metal, and The Trial of the Chicago 7. Um, some interesting candidates here. I'm going to say The Trial of the Chicago 7 because Hollywood likes um, Aaron Sorkin, and he is a great screenwriter, and I think that this is how they're going to reward him for that film, and he's finally going to get his due for best screenplay. Pete? Yeah, I'm going to agree with you there. Uh, the Academy loves Aaron Sorkin, so I'm going to go with The Trial of Chicago 7. And, you know, it did get a decent amount of nominations as well. So, And I think this is the only award they will take home. Uh, so I'm going to go with Trial of Chicago 7, Aaron Sorkin. Next is Best Adapted Screenplay. And this is adapted, always adapted from something else. Nominees are Borat, subsequent movie film. Not going to say the rest, okay? The Father, Nomadland, one Night in Miami, and The White Tiger, which is on Netflix. Um, all right, what the hell? So the first nominee is Borat, subsequent movie film, delivery a prodigious bribe to American regime for make benefit once glorious nation of Kazakhstan, okay? And um, my favorite here, and what I think is going to take the award, is The Father. Um, that was a really great adapted screenplay, and it kind of emphasizes the confusion of Anthony Hopkins' character. I'm going to go with Nomadland on this one. Uh, I think, like we said in the episode where we covered Nomadland, a lot of quotable lines uh, in that film, and I think it's going to take it home for this one, although I would not be mad, and I could see the father winning. So. Okay. And that brings us to, we have four more categories, bump, bump, bump. Best director. Um, a lot of people considered the director the most important part of a film and they are really the one who gets to shape it in their image right so um these these people are all integral to the films and um deserve all of these deserve nominations so the nominees are thomas vinterberg for another round david fincher for mank lee isaac chung for minari chloe zhao for nomadland and emerald Fennell for promising young woman i'm giving this to chloe zhao for nomadland she's the favorite she deserves it. Um, really, all these people deserve it, but Chloe Zhao deserves it. And historically speaking, she would be the first woman of color to win this award. Um, and the second woman ever after Catherine Bigelow for The Hurt Locker. Um, so yeah, Chloe Zhao for No Man Land. That's my pick. Yeah, uh, I'm going to go with Chloe Zhao as well. And you know, Catherine Bigelow won it 11 years ago, which is crazy that we haven't had a winner since then. Uh, it's a bad look, and you know, hopefully, we, the Academy gets away from that trend. Uh, but yeah, Nomadland, Chloe Zhao, she did great things with this film, and like you said, she did so much with this film: uh, editing, writing, directing. And I think they're going to recognize her in the biggest category of director. That brings us to Best Actress in a Leading Role um, nominees: Viola Davis for Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. Andre Day for U.S. versus Billie Holiday, Vanessa Kirby for Pieces of a Woman, which is on Netflix, Frances McDormand for Nomadland, and Carrie Mulligan for Promising Young Woman. Um, this is a category that I think this year in particular, a lot of these films are like very one-dimensional, and that's like the actress. It revolves around the actress. So these are all well-deserved. Um, 
My pick's going to be Carrie Mulligan for Promising Young Woman, although this is a contentious category. Uh, I, I honestly don't know. I haven't thought about this category that much, but this this is sort of a shot in the dark. Uh, I'm going to say Frances McDormand for Nomadland. Uh, the Academy loves her, uh, but again, I wouldn't be shocked if Carrie Mulligan won either. But that's or Viola Davis. For that yeah, matter. that's a good pick. Yeah. Um, and next, best actor in a leading role. Fabulous category. Um, nominees: Riz Ahmed for Sound of Metal, Anthony Hopkins for The Father, Gary Oldman for Mank, Stephen Young for Minari, and the hero, the man that's deserves it. And my prediction. Um, gone too soon. Uh, Chadwick Boseman from Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. And what was his last performance? He gave uh, a role, a significant amount of depth and a lot of emotion. And to think that it was his last role is just, it's, it's, it's crazy. Um, he was so good. And yet he was stricken with cancer at the time. I, I just can't believe he was able to pull that off. Um, it just makes it all the more emotional now that he's gone. And even if he didn't die, I think he, he would win for this performance. Um, but yeah, of course, this is going to be a really beautiful tribute. And I can't see them giving it to anyone else. Although everyone up here deserves to be up here with him. So yeah, Chadwick Boseman. Uh, yeah, I'm going to go with Chadwick Boseman as well. Uh, but, you know, hypothetically, if he wasn't nominated, if Maury's Black Bottom wasn't a movie, uh, I'd say Anthony Hopkins for The Father. Yeah. That brings us to our last uh, category. It's been fun, Pete. Uh, you know what? Let's just not even predict it. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> this this is the big one. This is the the mother of all categories. Best picture, i.e. best film of the year. Um, nominees, The Father, Judas and the Black Messiah, Mank, Minari, Nomadland, Promising Young Woman, Sound of Metal, and The Trial of the Chicago 7. If you want a great glimpse at the Oscars and want to cover a lot of nominees at once, just watch all of these. They're all good films in their own ways. Um, but yeah, this one's Nomadland to me. Nomadland has been the favorite for a long time, and it's been sweeping the awards races. It might not be my personal favorite. Um, I'm a big fan of Minari, The Father as well. But yeah, I'm, I'm going with Nomadland. Pete? I'm actually going to go with Minari for this one. Uh, although I could see Nomadland taking it back home, and you know it might. Uh, but I'm a big fan of Minari, and I think it's going to get some recognition in a Best Picture win, uh, along with a Best Supporting Actress win. Okay. So that covers it, guys. That's our, our coverage for this year's Oscars ballot. Um, it was a really unconventional year overall. And a lot of people were calling it a weak year, but now that I've seen really everything that was covered, it was a pretty interesting journey. Um, and there's actually a lot of really good stuff here under the surface in a lot of categories. So there's not the big budget stuff, but this is the year of indie and indie all the way. Like, let's go. Yeah. Um, yeah. It allows stuff like Nomad Land to flourish, and that stuff's deserved. So, yeah. Good year. Pete? Yeah. Uh, Tune in tomorrow night to the Oscars, 8 o'clock, ABC. Uh, I forget who's hosting. Is it is it Tina Fey? I don't and, know. Yeah, we'll I see. don't know. I don't know who's hosting. Uh, but you'll see 
So tune into that. Uh, I know John and I will be watching it with high scrutiny. And, you know, if, if we mess up live, live email us and be like, yo, you guys got that one wrong. Uh, yeah, we'll we, take criticism. Yeah, we'll take criticism for sure. Uh, so I think that's going to do it for our episode today. Uh, we left you with some sort of under the surface films that are getting recognition tomorrow. Uh, so watch those if you have the time. Yeah. So we'll see how it goes. Pete and I's predictions versus each other. I do want to know, although we sucked on the Globes, I did predict one more right than him. And I'm going to keep holding that over his head until he beats me in one of these. So, yeah, Pete, you can eat it, man. Um, anyway, thank you for listening to Splash of Cinema, episode 16, signing off. I am John. I'm Pete. See ya. See ya.